0: Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, longtime media critic Jeff Cohen joins us for a quick uh, slash and burn of the corporate warmongering mainstream pundits Currently pushing for war. Also, more than 16 national and regional organizations recently issued a joint statement calling for the elimination of the 400 land based nuclear missiles now armed and on hair trigger alert in the U.S. We'll be joined by legendary Pentagon Papers whistleblower Dan Ellsberg to talk about the significance and we'll rebroadcast a crucial frontline flashpoints report on the expanding killing fields of Myanmar, and the story of a persistent people rising in resistance. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifico Radio. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifico Radio Network. Uh, we are broadcasting today from San Francisco, and we are welcoming our brothers and sisters at KPFK in Los Angeles and in Southern Cal. And again, uh, we are happy to have you along, and we're really delighted to have joining us now Jeff Cohen, old friend of mine. He's a media critic, columnist, documentary filmmaker, and uh, retired. Journalism professor who founded the Media Watch Group Fair in 1986. For years, he was a regular pundit on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, discussing issues of media and politics. He is the author of Cable News Confidential My Misadventures in Corporate Media. Jeff Cohen, it's great to have you back on Flashpoints. Welcome.
1: Great to be with you, Dennis.
0: Well, OK, listen, I, I really want to set you loose uh, on the corporate press. But, uh, you know, the liberals are sort of uh, maybe you could call them stenographers for the State Department and the Pentagon. But I think they're also out of control cheerleaders for the war. Uh, how would you analyze coverage of this sort of leading up to whatever's going to happen with Russia in the Ukraine?
1: Well, I I watch too much cable news and too much mainstream TV news, as you know, and it has been a steady parade of retired military brass, so-called experts from the think tanks, both the retired military brass and the think tank experts at these conservative or hawkish think tanks. They're all on the payroll of the military contractors, and I have seen... Maybe 100, 150 different voices or different experts, different segments that had people giving their opinion. And I have not heard one dissenting voice. I have not heard one voice of the peace movement. I have not heard one expert who actually knows Ukraine. I mean, my grandfather was born on the border of Ukraine, Belarus, but you know, I probably have more expertise than the people that are going on there. And it's it's one uh, uh, hawk after another. There has not been a single debate. I saw Andrea Mitchell of MSNBC, one of the worst war hawks, uh, in, uh, you know, interviewing a few of the usual suspects. Someone who was an admiral in the invasion of Iraq. Someone who worked for Colin Powell during the invasion of Iraq at a high level. And after this discussion where there's no debate, Andrea Mitchell was effusive. These are the greatest foreign policy minds anywhere. And so, again, a democracy, Dennis, as you know, requires debate. A, uh, you know, there's never a time for an important policy debate then on issues of war and peace pacifica radio kpfa went on the air in 1949 during the beginning years of the cold war and the idea was there had to be a place where people would come on the air who actually care about peace care about civilian casualties care about nuclear disarmament because there was so much warmongering in the media in 1949 i would argue it's worse and and you know, Dennis, I was at in MSNBC in the run-up to the Iraq invasion. And, right. uh, you know, we were censored, suppressed, and then terminated by management at MSNBC because they believe we tried to put on too many dissenting voices in a media that was 95 percent let's invade iraq let's invade iraq today uh anyone who doesn't believe they have a weapons of mass destruction uh threat against us is an idiot you know we were the one place on mainstream tv that attempted to provide a dissenting voice and we were terminated by msnbc no one's making that effort anymore You know, the questions from uh, whether it's Wolf Blitzer on CNN or Jake Tapper on CNN, uh, are we being tough enough with Putin? Are we standing up? Isn't this too soft on the Russians? There's never a question from the other side, which is, is there a diplomatic solution to this powder keg that could go sideways into a nuclear war? That question, the obvious question, has never been asked.
0: We're speaking with Jeff Cohen, uh, who, among his credits also, this is an important credit, Jeff, that you were, in fact, shall we say, let go with Phil Donahue uh, right before a crucial war in which uh, the various people we now see on MSNBC lied us into. In other words, they provided the big lies for the wars uh, that uh, I guess you were not allowed. They didn't want. Uh, sort of a a dialogue about whether war would be a good thing, what might happen. Obviously, that was an incredibly important dialogue to happen. Look at where we are now. Let me tell people where you are is listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We broadcast from the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, and we come to you through uh, Southern California through KPFK, uh, and we are happy to have these free speech, non-corporate, no-holes-barred, truth-to-power airwaves to broadcast. Broadcast over. Uh, Jeff, say a little bit more about uh, the the quality of reporting you would like to see. Is there anybody out there You know, is there uh, a few voices in the wilderness? Are you hearing anything uh, of meaning in terms of trying to cover, say, the history and and put this war into context? It is amazing to me, Jeff. You know, you were fired from MSNBC, but I'm thinking here's because what uh, potential buyers. And here I'm seeing Nicole Wallace... Now, where have I heard that name before? She's now doing two hours on MSNBC. But what was her other job before that? Did she did she work for the Bushes? Yeah, she was a Bush
1: spokesperson. There's all sorts of Bush spokespersons.
0: Communications uh, director, on, I think, Jeff.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. On MSNBC yeah. and CNN, there's yeah. many of these voices that are considered heroes because they're against Trump, and many of them. Uh, were involved in selling the war in Iraq. I mean, keep in mind, there are experts. They just don't get into the mainstream media. You ask me, are there any in the mainstream media doing this kind of reporting with the history? No. I haven't seen Katrina Vanden on the air from The Nation, the editorial director. I haven't seen uh, Mr. Matlock, the former U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, as it was dissolving. I mean, the history is out there. And what's interesting is because the U.S. media won't have this history, when they do cover a Putin news conference, I consider him an autocrat and a danger and a threat. But when they cover, uh, the only time I hear the true history, it comes from the autocrat. It comes from Putin. I mean, the real history is that as the uh, Berlin Wall had come down, the Germans were reunifying, the USSR was dissolving 1990 and 91, that the leadership of the United States in repeated meetings with Gorbachev and other Russian leaders kept affirming to them, giving assurances to them, guaranteeing to them that... Uh, NATO would not expand one, one inch eastward toward uh, Russia's borders. And it was, all of the documents are findable uh, thanks to the National Security Archive, which is an independent outfit at George Washington University. Anyone can just Google NATO expansion. What did Gorbachev hear? And you'll see 24 documents. Uh, And it wasn't just the U.S. leadership uh, telling the Russians that NATO would not expand to uh, Russia's border. It was the leaders of West Germany, the leaders of Britain, the leaders of France. And then there's a memo from Secretary of State Baker to the leader of Uh, West Germany, saying, yes, this is what I told Gorbachev. And then when Bill Clinton became the president, he gave a similar assurance to Yeltsin. So uh, it shouldn't be that the only, you know, I, I was listening to CNN the other day, and they ran it as Putin claims, Putin gave a lecture at his news conference about what purported to be history and NATO's history of deceptions claiming the alliance wouldn't move one inch eastward. Uh, U.S. officials have denied making such promises. Again, that that may seem balanced. It's just not journalism when you've got dozens of diplomatic declassified documents showing that these assurances were made in uh, as the Cold War was ending. And frankly, uh, there is no reason for Ukraine to be in NATO. You know, there is a diplomatic solution. If Katrina was on, uh, from the Nation magazine, was on these shows, she would talk about the Minsk-Normandy Accords, the protocols that were negotiated as an attempt to stop the ongoing civil war in eastern Ukraine by France and Germany alongside the leadership of uh, Russia and Ukraine. And it called for a neutral Ukraine that wouldn't be a NATO. It called for demilitarizing the Ukraine-Russia border with international monitors. It called for some sort of slightly more autonomous or provincial authority in those disputed eastern uh, provinces of Ukraine. But the idea was to create an independent Ukraine that Russia could live with, that Russia wasn't concerned about, that Russia wasn't threatened by. And um you don 't hear about the the, the uh, Minsk Normandy Accords. It just does not come up
0: and well, it, you heard Katrina you heard Katrina on these on this show last week <laughs> saying oh, yeah. and all on, right saying all oh, these yeah. things
1: yeah, she gives the whole history. <laughs> yeah. she knows the history, yeah. she speaks Russian, but the reality is that that kind of discussion would require sobriety. It would require a certain level of expertise. And all we get out of the allegedly corporate liberal media, CNN, MSNBC, is this cheerleading for war. The public doesn't go along with it. You know, there was a poll conducted by Data for Progress, 1,200 likely voters, about a week ago. And they said, do you agree or disagree with the idea that the U.S. should strike a diplomatic deal with Russia to avoid war over Ukraine? More than 60% said they agree. 71% of Democrats, 46% of Republicans. So there is some war weariness on the part of the U.S. public. There's a huge peace movement. Code Pink and Roots Action and a hundred other groups signed a statement uh, to President Biden. Tone down the rhetoric. Work for a diplomatic accord. Uh, give a guarantee. Right. Uh, that the Ukraine will not become part of NATO, uh, you know, no NATO expansion of any kind, uh, have a moratorium on that. There are simple solutions to get out of this very, very dangerous uh, situation we're in, and no one knows how dangerous it is more than your next guest, Dan Ellsberg
0: well that's for sure and that's a terrifying interview uh and um the point that he makes and he made well with the uh along with the, uh, a piece he did with Norman Solomon in the nation uh about how when we enter these periods, uh, in terms of this kind of distress level and are we going to war? We even all these weapons that are already on hair triggers are yeah. one step closer to having a nuclear war. There's no room. The, the bulletin of atomic scientists have no more room to push their midnight clock without, you know, going over the other side.
1: Yeah, we're, we're in the most dangerous situation since the Cuban Missile Crisis. There could be an accidental nuclear war. 90% of the nuclear warheads are in the hands of the U.S. and Russia and they're pointed at each other. And you don't have anything resembling independent journalism, tough questioning and dissenting views in a full debate. And you need that to happen before a war breaks out. They didn't allow us to do that. When we were at MSNBC with the Phil Donahue show, but we need it now more than ever.
0: Wow. All right. Well, that is the voice of, uh, Jeff Cohen, old friend, uh, media critic, columnist, documentary filmmaker, retired journalism professor. He founded the, uh, the media watch group fair in 1986. For years, he was a regular pundit on CNN, other networks, and, uh, he's written a book, Cable News Confidential, My Misadventures in corporate media. Jeff, thank you for the great work you do deconstructing this uh, media and these kinds of reports because it absolutely drives me nuts up a wall. And I think it has a profoundly numbing effect and a dangerous effect uh, on people that just sit there and think they're like they're hearing a liberal point of view.
1: And thank you so much, Dennis, for giving the other side, the side of peace, the side of diplomacy, the side of sanity. Thank you for your work.
0: All right. Uh, Jeff Cohen, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Fernstein. Short break. And then we're going to come back with that Ellsberg interview. Uh, He also talks about uh, saving the life of Julian Assange, who sort of helped stop a war or two. Stay with us. So honored to have joining us Dan Ellsberg, the probably the uh, most significant uh, whistleblower in the 20th and the 21st century. I'm not going to guess what's going to happen in the 22nd century. But Dan Ellsberg, welcome back to Flashpoints. It's good to have you with us. Terrific. Well, it's good to have you now. um, Tell us about these Missiles. What are they and why are they on <laughs> hair trigger?
2: Okay, the missiles are in concrete silos and supposedly to protect them from enemy attack, uh, involves the Soviet Union, now Russia, conceivably China, ICBM attack. Unfortunately, half a century ago, missiles became accurate enough to destroy other missiles in a silo you know they're close enough they can reach close them so the missiles that we have in these silos which are rehearsed every day there are people in those underground silos who get at no notice warning uh, signals the time has come you know to launch your missiles and they practice it several times a day turning the keys doing all this It will end most civilized life if actually the day the warning is that there actually are missiles on the way. And that warning is often false. We get warnings like that all the time. Some of them are very serious. And uh, fortunately, the uh, inaccuracy of the warning has been discovered within a minute or two of the president getting an order of 10 minutes uh, in order to uh, launch those missiles, which, if launched, will be part of a, uh, a war that will cause a nuclear winner and kill most people on Earth. So in other words, it's obscene, it's absurd, it's ridiculous to think of having a system that will destroy civilization on a 10-minute order, and to think of a person, one president, or in Russia, Putin, or in others who have their fingers on a trigger, Others being able, uh, being confronted with the notion: if you don't launch those missiles, Mr. President, we will lose that trillion-dollar investment. Uh, we will, our missiles will be destroyed in their silos. So you've got to launch them. And as I say, they actually rehearse this no-stay machine effect every day. It's it's absurd. It's expensive, but that's a quarter of a trillion dollars are going to be spent on a new set of missiles, which should not exist. The existing missiles should not have existed for more than half a century, even from a Cold Warrior point of view. It's been nothing but uh, the Air Force retaining that mission away from the Navy with their submarine missiles which are invulnerable, unlike these. So these missiles, these uh, vulnerable launch-on-warning missiles, should have been discarded at least half a century ago. They keep going for basically one reason only. Well, the Air Force wants them. They don't want to give up that mission. But the thing that sells it to Congress is the big jobs program. And that's a euphemism. It's a profits program for Boeing, for Northrop Grumman, for Raytheon, for uh, General Dynamics. At the moment, Northrop Grumman has the sole contract, the sole bidder for the contract on the new ICBM. But their subcontractor is Lockheed and they have, have only tried to get in on it and rejected for some reason. They have arranged to have subcontracts in most districts in the country and uh, virtually in almost every state in the country. So every senator, every congressperson is confronted with, oh, uh, we can't get rid of those missiles uh, or making new missiles, new Minuteman missiles, one, two, three, because uh you know the assembly line would close and people would be out of work now almost any other use of that money would make for more jobs uh, than spending it on weapons which are high-tech uh high high investment jobs if you spent that same amount of money on which is tens of millions of uh, billions but say just a billion or two uh take away from that program put it on education or health or infrastructure and create many more jobs but uh, for the same amount of money but these are jobs republicans will budget for not for health not for infrastructure as we're seeing we can't afford that but any amount of money for so-called national security and it has nothing
0: to do with national security it is a pork Program it's legislative portal well, well, actually, well, actually, it has everything to do with national insecurity, Dan. I'm sure you would agree. Let me tell people you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We are honored to be joined right. by legendary whistleblower Dan Ellsberg. We're talking about. Uh, A uh, declaration uh, made today public, more than 60 national and regional organizations issued a joint statement calling for the elimination of these 400 land-based nuclear missiles we're talking about now with Dan uh, Ellsberg. You know, Dan, we shared uh, a mutual friend in the late uh, Paul Berman. And Paul, before he saw the light, if you will, his job he was he was working with with uh, for Henry Kissinger, and as a mathematician, Paul's job was to say, you know, the impact of these kinds of weapons we're talking about, you know, at uh, twenty miles, forty miles, sixty miles, whatever, and I, he would talk about it in the most terrified way, but. Tell us something. What would one missile do if, it's, if say, it was launched and it landed uh, in uh, Moscow, central Moscow? Well, what would that mean well, to the people of Moscow? Most of the missiles now are smaller than they used to be
2: because we put the number of them on one missile, or as they call it, multiple independently retargetable vehicles. And so to get several of them on one missile, they're smaller than they used to be. But it so happens, I just read today, that one of the things that they may get rid of is the D 63 bomb, which is the last megaton bomb. Now that's a million tons of dynamite, uh, of high-explosive equivalent. Remember, in World War II, uh, the biggest what they called blockbusters, because they destroyed a city block, were uh, 10... Fifteen. There were a few twenty-ton bombs that would destroy a city block. And some of them, by the way, are still buried. They keep finding them in Germany. Have an explosion. They have to. They have to. They have to uh, take found thousand, literally oh, thousands of people—out of the area so they can dig up this bomb and uh, try to destroy it uh, peacefully instead of well. These ICBMs are like those very bombs in the silos. They can go off with a false alarm any time. But your question was now the yield issue, and uh, <clears throat> as I say, those were uh, say fifteen tons—that uh, kind of typical for a blockbuster. The Hiroshima bomb was what we call an atomic bomb, a fission bomb. Uh, for me, we are uh, studying of high heavy elements, U two thirty five or plutonium, and at Hiroshima. That was between, they figure it differently, 13 kilotons to maybe 16 kilotons. That's 13 or 15 thousand tons, not 15 tons, but it fills a thousand times more. The bombs are now necessary as triggers... The thermonuclear bombs, the fusion bombs, which uh, ultimately fuse light element, high isotopes of hydrogen. And those are a thousand times more than the Hiroshima bomb or the Nagasaki bomb. So it's the first droppable bomb that we we, uh, dealt with in 1954 was 15 megatons, 15 million tons, as opposed to 15 tons. So it's a million times more than the blockbusters of World War Two. Now, that's 15 megatons, and we had we had uh, weapons that were like 24 megatons. Now, most of those have been uh, relieved, have been uh, dismantled now because you get more, sorry to say it, but bang for the buck, you get more killing if you distribute a number of smaller bombs over an area than having one big bomb which wastes a lot of its destructive power upwards into the sky and so forth. So uh, most of them are smaller, but this one, they're... This, Debating Literally today, I saw this in defense news, uh, that the one thing that Biden may actually get rid of, why? Because Obama was going to get rid of the B-63. I think that's the designation for it. He had it designated to get rid of it. But Trump, of course... Retrieved it. Well, yeah, We need megaton bombs. Uh, and you, you asked what a megaton would do. A megaton uh, in a in a, a city area, a metropolitan city area, would uh, destroy everything within miles of it. Uh, could easily cause 100,000 or more uh, casualties, depending on the density of the city and so forth. You can get, let's say, with a large 10 megaton, or five megaton, and we used to have a lot of, uh, you could get a million casualties uh, kept killed, not just the casualties from the larger burning area and so forth. In other words, a million people is uh, half an Auschwitz, actually. Uh, About two million people were killed in Auschwitz. So in other words, one warhead would uh, kill let's say two words. Would be an Auschwitz. These things were an Auschwitz, a portable Auschwitz is what they are. And we had thousands of them. When Eisenhower left office, uh, there was something, let's see, when he came into office, I think there were about 1,400 warheads. When he left office, it was twenty-four, twenty-two thousand 22,000 warheads, some of them smaller. When Johnson left office, and I worked for Kennedy and Johnson and a little bit for Nixon, when they left office, we had uh, something like. Thirty-seven thousand, I think it was the the total for the world with the Russians was about sixty-nine thousand, something like that warheads, and we're talking now tens of thousands of those were multi-megaton thermonuclear weapons. So uh, there aren't that many cities in the world, obviously. Uh, Herb York a director, first director of Livermore Labs, in charge of the site, doing a lot of H-bomb thermonuclear research, later head of research and engineering and defense department, later a major arms negotiator. He asked at his old laboratory, Livermore, once, he reflected on the question, how many bombs, how many warheads does it take to deter an enemy rational enough to be deterred? And he said, he should ask people about that. and said, in my mind, I think it's like one or maybe ten. Uh, think, for example, of how much deterrence Saddam would have had if he'd had ten, even ten atomic weapons um, and so forth. He said, OK, let's go from another point of view. What is the maximum number of deaths that one man should be able to bring about? in a short period of time. Well, there's no simple answer to that. But let's just say, suppose it were World War II, 60 million deaths over six years. I said, well, that would take about 100 warheads, 100 heliconic warheads. I said, maybe more than that, but not much more than that. So I said, it seems to me that the appropriate number to deter nuclear attacks we're talking national security now against a nuclear opponents is between one and ten or a hundred and closer to one than a hundred. We have reduced our stockpiles after the cold war by eighty percent, and we still have or agreed to have fifteen hundred and fifty, not a hundred, not ten, not fifty, fifteen hundred weapons. On alert now, half of them at sea, half of them, a little less than half, vulnerable in in, uh, the mid-band silos. And the Russians, about the same. We're both supposed to have 1,500. They have a little bit more. This has no relation to to national security or to deterrence of attack. It is a military-industrial complex (laughs) plugging along, getting campaign donations, satisfying uh, service desires to be in the game Uh, competition between the Air Force and the Navy, the Army is out of this particular competition and uh, as I say, campaign donations, jobs, there really are jobs Um, and get rid of them you can't, we're calling we have 60 60 groups now, some are just positions for social responsibility and others, calling for the elimination of these weapons is that going to happen? No, we don't come to Congress with bags of money like uh the hundreds hundreds and hundreds of lobbyists uh from these corporations do uh We just say it's wrong to be preparing to end most human life, not all of it, most human life at a moment's notice that shouldn't we We shouldn't be doing that and uh but we are because uh it pays.
0: Well, uh, we're speaking with Dan Ellsberg. We're talking about uh, uh, a declaration today. Uh, Sixty national, regional organizations uh, issued a statement calling for the elimination of of these warheads. We're talking about some 400 land-based nuclear missiles now armed and on hair-trigger alert. What is hair-trigger? What exactly does hair-trigger mean? It means that... All of
2: those weapons, men and man missiles, with solid fuel can be fired at a moment's notice, are to be able to be launched within actually a couple of minutes in terms of the missiles. The reason you talk about 10 minutes, is it doesn't take that long to uh, get these missiles off the ground when they get a warning, which may or may not be. A correct warning; it may be a false warning. The ten minutes is the amount of time the president would have after they have detected the missile, after the enemy missile, after it's launched and gone up in various ways—infrared satellites when they launch uh, the missile, then in the stratosphere uh, or the upper, uh, the upper regions—and coming down, the radars do various things. Is this really a missile attack? They have to ask. Well, actually, nowadays uh, people are always putting up uh, weather weather satellites, uh, weather satellites, or different kinds of satellites with missiles, setting up missiles for uh, various kinds of tricks. Countries, so they get a lot of on their warning system. They get a lot of warnings, but they filter out a lot of these. And they're coming. Hmm, how many are coming? Are they? Where are they coming from? Where are they coming to? It takes about 20 minutes to decide whether there's actually an attack on. If there is an attack, it lands in 30 minutes. So, uh, you know, I'm a little rough on the calculations here, but the 30 minutes is a pretty good figure for the the Soviet Union or Russia now to come at us or China. So uh, part of that time is taken, and the president has maybe several minutes or as much as 10 to decide get those Minuteman missiles off. He doesn't have to decide about the sub-launch missiles. 700 warheads at sea on patrol, enough to cause nuclear winter in themselves. So that's a domesday machine. Um, and then the Minuteman are another domesday machine, meaning killing most people on Earth. So we've got two of them. Uh, and then we have bombers who could do it, too. So... Uh, he has no great pressure on him to do anything about the subs because they can last months, a year under theirs, nothing but. The Minutemen, men, however, he's about to lose, and one could ask, so what? What good is it to put them off if we're under attack? I don't think anyone has asked that question in the White House or the Pentagon ever. And I was working on war plans 60 years ago on this, and uh, certainly that was un- unthinkable. It wasn't just unsayable. It was unimaginable. Why why fire these weapons if they're at us? You know, their missiles are already on the way. We can't destroy them. It will just add to the... Uh, well, we didn't know about nuclear winter then. But in 1983, uh, that's 40 years ago now, they realized that the smoke from the cities we would hit uh, whether or not they were admitting they were destroying cities, but they were hitting command and control targets in the cities and air bases next to the cities and air defenses and this and that. Hundreds and hundreds of cities would burn in firestorms, unusual storms as at Hiroshima, where the smoke would be lofted into the stratosphere where it wouldn't rain out. It would go around the world, Within days, and cut off about 70% of the sunlight, enough to kill all harvests. And depending on the season of the year, it will even in spring and the summer freeze lakes, freeze uh, rivers, and so forth. But the main thing is it would kill all food production. And our uh, stores of food production in the world, a lot of them in the U.S., are worth about 60 days. Well, we wouldn't be exporting a lot at that point. Uh, And by the way, we would have lost our cities pretty much. But anyway, within a year, nearly everyone would be dead. Not everyone, because the scientists who work on this, like Brian Toon and Alan Roebuck, who done these calculations, say, no, probably between 1% and 10% of the people would survive, people in... Australia, on the shores, in New Zealand, like Peter Keel who bought up a lot of land in New Zealand uh, for this purpose, would uh, survive on fish and moths and whatever food they stored. And, you know, 1% is uh, a lot of people. It's uh, 78 million people. Uh, that's uh, quite a bit there in historic terms. Like 98% gone. Or say it was 90% uh, are gone. So you have, what is it, uh, 700 million, well, almost 800 million. Isn't there? Uh, I might have a message to go on here, but it's like that. The rest gone. And that is the risk we are taking, you could say hour by hour, day by day, but above all, in a crisis. And we're heading toward crises. With China over Taiwan, possible armed conflict with Chinese for the first time since Korea, conflict with Russian troops over Ukraine, talking about today and yesterday. NATO was talking about prepared for a large conventional conflict, a non nuclear conflict, which would be a stalemate and which would challenge one side or the other to go nuclear weapons and then to escalate. This is insane talk. And it's taking place at the highest levels in the U.S. and Russia and Taiwan and other places. It's as insane as believing that Trump is the president. And that seems to be believed by about 70% of Republicans. So uh, we're caught here in an insane... uh, And we should change it. It isn't going to change because... Quickly, because preparing for war is what we do. Seven hundred eighty uh, billion dollars in a defense budget, and preparing for it is very profitable.
0: And it's going to Well, keep this going is the thing, time. Dan. This is this is what really worries me. Now, there <laughs> there is a corporate side to this. Isn't there? Uh, the, it, yeah. We certainly have one of the driving forces is uh, the war makers and the profit motive. How, how powerful are they in uh, keeping this uh, steamroller towards uh, the nuclear insanity going? Well, the...
2: Uh, <laughs> Very powerful, more than you or me, or the people we talk to, or the people who listen to this program. Uh, actually, there used to be a movement, the freeze movement back in the early 1980s, inspired by Ronald Reagan's loose talk about winning World War Three. scared people. And they said, let's stop you know, on both sides. Uh, freeze, but no, that wasn't that. Didn't get anywhere. The Russians, by the way, accepted that idea. it, said, "Let's do it." But Reagan, no, 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 no. So uh, he had promised to increase our defense budget. Right now, um, <laughs> Biden said he would take care of inflation by increasing the defense budget. campaign campaigned on this by about one percent, but uh, Congress has just as you know. Added twenty five billion to a seven hundred and thirty billion or so budget. With no idea of, uh, 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 there's hardly anyone in Congress who knew who knows even what I've said so far. They don't know what they're voting on. They just know money goes to us. We're not spending it. We're not buying French planes. We're buying American planes. As a matter of fact, I just saw today again in in defense big issue going on the Germans have a what's called tornado, tornado, tornado plane, which they're going to replace. And today they started thinking, hmm, maybe we'll buy F-35s, a and a half dollar program, oh, which is God. total 100% pork, a plane that will probably, you know, is, is outclassed by other planes in almost any one of its functions. And we're talking now about putting nuclear weapons on F-35s for Germany. And <laughs> uh, it, it, if they use those weapons, no Germans would be left, or Europeans, or Russians. So, you know, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be a matter of uh, anything any invidious here. It, putting F 35s around the world with nuclear weapons on them as if you're going to use them in combat, do they really believe that? I don't know. What they do know. Is it? It's worth live. That's a Lockheed um, thing. A uh, uh, Lockheed is a subcontractor on the ICBMs. Boeing dropped out of bidding, so we have this um, quarter of a trillion dollar program for thirty years, hundred billion in the next ten years, going to one bidder. It's a little unusual, and uh, why? Because Boeing noticed that Northrop Grumman had just bought a solid fuel company that makes the fuel for the missiles. And in theory, they're supposed to be able to sell it, you know, to any aircraft company that uh, wants it on the same basis. But Boeing suspected... But Northrop Grumman would get a better deal out of this from the company they had just acquired. So they, they dropped out. These are the kind of, in other words, they are bidding on doomsday machines. And this is not oh, like God. bidding on Zyklon B for for, for six million people uh, in Auschwitz and uh, in other places in Germany. We're not talking about six million people we're talking about six billion people how do you how do you, six you know, billion. What, what can a human mind do to comprehend the idea of planning to bring about uh,
0: the death of six seven billion people I, I don't i i tell you it's it's sort of like uh a pandemic in a split second uh, we're, we're out of time dan uh, but I, I would love to give you 30 seconds uh for a shout out to julian assange So people remember.
2: Listen, I have to say, you, you introduced me as you know whistleblower of the 21st century no i was in the last century i did release some top secret stuff this uh, this year about taiwan to no effect that i can keep but this morning i got a call from marion illinois supermax prison uh with daniel hale who i would say along yes. with Ed snowden and chelsea manning and julian assange these are the whistleblowers of the 21st century why is daniel hale in a supermax prison wrapped by covid enormous covid and for having revealed that we kill many 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 more people who are not targeted in our drone program our assassination program we kill 17 untargeted people for every targeted person we assassinate so for that He's in a supermax prison. I'm gonna to talk to him tomorrow and, and ask him how the COVID thing is going. But these people are heroes of mine. They are the, the greatest patriots
0: we have, and they're patriots not only of this country, of humanity. And Dad, please tell Daniel Hale to put uh flashpoints and Dennis Bernstein on his call list. Um because I wanna I wanna open that dialogue. Like we understand that, that he's would a be hero great, along but you with, know... I- I just looked up. What is supermax prisons for? Oh, that's you. right. they stop him from, from talking yeah, to right. journalists. from
2: talking to journalists, they
0: can't do it. It was a <laughs> right. five-minute call. Oh, right. oh, God. Where, well, what am I thinking, Dan? What am I thinking? Um, anyway, we're going to leave it there. But as always, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, you have done extraordinary work to enlighten all of us. Uh, the battle obviously continues. Uh, I, and I didn't purposely ask you about the atomic clock... But Because I know the terrible answer. It's not looking good. Uh, We're out of here for now. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. to the border Uh, we've been covering uh, doing drumbeat coverage of the situation in Myanmar and now we go directly to the border uh, between Thailand and Myanmar where uh, many many hundreds of thousands have fled or fleeing a uh, expanding crackdown by the Burmese dictatorship it's been violent uh, targeted uh, the worst targeted if, is the medical profession, uh, can you imagine? They're under attack in the middle of a pandemic. Joining us is our good friend, Jeannie Uh She is a filmmaker. She's been covering the situation in Myanmar for many years. She joins us at the border. And Jeannie Halisey, welcome back to Flashpoints. Tell us exactly where you are and, and just give our audience uh, a sense of what you've been covering over the last couple of weeks.
3: Thank you, Dennis. It's a pleasure to be back on Flashpoints. And um, I'm sitting here next to a Burmese activist, and um, for the purpose of security, we will call her Winnie for this interview. And she's also going to be speaking with me today. Uh, We're in a border town um, along the Thailand-Myanmar border where thousands of activists like Winnie have fled for their lives to escape arrest or torture in detention or worse. Uh, Winnie was among those activists who took part in the organized protests when the military seized power exactly one year ago today. So today is a very somber day here along the border and across Myanmar as this one-year anniversary of the illegal military coup that refused to accept the election results that would have seen Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy Party take the dominant seats in Parliament once again. Um, they overturned the election results claiming fraud, Have arrested Aung San Suu Kyi and the president, as well as other key members of Parliament. And when the people responded to say no more military rule, the military completely underestimated the passion and the determination of the resistance that is now called the People's Revolution here. So people like Winnie, who are sitting next to me, are actually considering themselves to be part of a revolutionary movement to end these decades of military dictatorship. Um, Just to give your viewers an overview. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, no, go on, please. Go on.
3: Just to give a summary of where we're at one year on, um, many different um, human rights organizations that have been gathering documented, verifiable evidence of the atrocities that have been committed to date include the Assistance Association for Political Prisoners in Burma. They have cited 11,651 people have been arrested in the last year. Uh, That includes 262 children, which contravenes international law. We have also seen documentation from the Media Monitor Collective. There are currently 701,425 internally displaced persons, most of them ethnic villagers, women, children, and the elderly who are fleeing ongoing conflict in what is now a civil war. Over 2,000 civilians have been killed in this war and over 2,200 Houses have been burned to the ground, so we're now at a situation where more than 70% of the country of Myanmar is in a state of armed conflict with the military using airstrikes, mortar shelling, and gross brutalities against the civilians.
0: We're speaking with Jeannie Hallisey. She's talking to us from the border between uh, Myanmar, formerly Burma, uh, and Thailand. Uh, There is a growing resistance to a vicious uh, military crackdown that's been going on uh, for a year. In one moment, I want to get to your guest there with you. But please just take a moment to remind people why there is such an attack on the medical profession in the middle of a pandemic
3: when the military seized power exactly one year ago today the people of myanmar resisted as i described it was an unprecedented response so myanmar is a country that was under military dictatorship in an absolute sense likened only to north korea for approximately half a century during the president obama uh, um, administration, it was considered the benchmark foreign policy um, highlight of Obama's time to help the country transition toward democracy. That transition period led to the release of the, the political leader Aung San Suu Kyi, who had been mostly under house arrest for, the, for 15 years prior. And this political transition period eased in a semblance of democratization of a country that had been under absolute military rule for, for, as I said, half a century. Uh, Myanmar is a a complex country. Uh, The majority race are called Bama, and about one-third of their population are diverse ethnic nationalities. There are over 100 distinct ethnic nationalities, the Kachin, the Shan, the Chin, the Karen, the Kareni among them, each of whom have their own cultural identity. And it is these ethnic nationalities that have borne the worst part of Myanmar's brutality. And in in response, they formed ethnic armed organizations in what they would describe as a defensive war against the military's human rights abuses. Um, my, My colleague sitting next to me, Winnie, will describe a bit more about the root causes of that and why the, why the Myanmar military have targeted these ethnic groups. Your listeners will surely remember the crimes against humanity, what some are calling genocide against the Rohingya that took place several years ago. That has led to uh, a mass exodus in what is now the world's largest refugee camp where over one million Rohingya are languishing. That case actually went to the International Court of Justice and the Gambia brought the charges against the Myanmar military, and in a, in a very um, now now seen as a very pivotal, if not tragic, um, response by Aung San Suu Kyi, she then went to the Hague. To defend the military's actions about the Rohingya in a bid for her to continue what she thought would be incremental changes towards democracy, which clearly which clearly failed, so the military had no idea that this generation, the so-called Gen D, and my, my colleague next to me is from Gen Y. These are youth who grew up enjoying this space of democracy. And there was no way they were going to reverse that. And the elections that were not upheld had millions of voters, uh, 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 approximately 3 million voters, who cast their vote for the first time. And to have those votes overturned, they were not going to have it. And the military had no idea that the resistance would spread the way it did. So these protests that began in major cities were brutally repressed and it has now devolved into a massive civil disobedience movement. The medical professionals led that. Doctors, medics, emergency technicians who went out on the streets as the military used live bullets to crush the protesters were themselves targeted and shot at or beaten or arrested. So among those who have fled include the medical professionals and the healthcare system is in a state of collapse in the midst of a pandemic with very low numbers of people vaccinated.
0: Amazing. That's the voice of Jeannie Halsey. Again, she's a filmmaker, a contributor to the Flashpoint show here on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Burns, and you are listening to Flashpoints, and uh, again, uh, we broadcast from the San Francisco Bay Area over KPFA. We are delighted to welcome uh, onto the show our sister station, KPFK in Los Angeles. Uh, And now what I'd love you to do, uh, Jeannie Halsey, uh, is to, again, set the scene, remind our listeners Where you are, and introduce us uh, to your your partner there, your collaborator.
3: So we are in um, a Thailand border town. Um, the The Thailand um, has a fifteen hundred kilometer long border with Myanmar on its uh, on one side of its border. Myanmar borders Thailand, China. India, and Bangladesh, but its longest border is shared with Thailand. And Thailand has been the place over decades where ethnic villagers have fled because the civil war in Myanmar against these ethnic groups is actually the longest-running civil war in the world, unknown to many people. So Thailand has a long history of being the recipient of these refugees who flee here. And with this latest brutal crackdown that has seen massive arrests and and the, the conditions that I described, thousands of activists who are not ethnics, but were people who were um, members of civil society, people who were professionals, people who were government servants or working in different capacities, but had taken part in the civil disobedience movement, a nonviolent form of stopping work to express their resistance to military takeover, were then themselves targeted. And my colleague next to me is an environmental activist, who has a long history of working in civil society to develop communities' awareness of environmental issues that directly impact particularly ethnic areas. So she was among those who had to flee for her life and had to disguise herself whilst heavily pregnant, along with her husband who had to disguise himself and take a car and have somebody disguise themselves as a Buddhist monk to pretend that they were wealthy investors driving towards the Myanmar border to get to a place where they could then flee for their lives across this river that leads to the town where we are. So we are in a place where um, at the edge of the town, you can see Myanmar. You can, you can talk to people, you can shout out to them, and they can hear you from this side of the border. And this borderland area um, along Thailand has now seen hundreds of thousands of ethnics who have fled for their lives. So there are hotels all over this town where there are several thousand activists who are being housed by the IOM, the International Office of Migration, waiting to be sent to our country, the United States, as a humanitarian parole for emergency extraction for their lives. Uh, This day will be marked by a silent strike. So across Myanmar, all of the activists and those people, because now this resistance, this revolution is truly every village, every town, every city across the country has clearly stated they want this dictatorship to end. And the way they will express that today is through a silent strike. So from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. today, all businesses will shutter their doors in a form of resistance taxi drivers buses will stop driving to empty the streets of the city to show the military through the only non-political non-violent means left to them which is silence, to show them this is now the end of dictatorship in response in a sort of orwellian absurd response that the military has had They have actually issued orders to arrest people who take part in a silent strike. How would one do that? If a business is shuttered, they will actually enter the business and charge the business owner for not opening their business and arrest them. This is the level of brutality and I I would actually say kind of desperation that the military has now resorted to in desperately trying to hold on with their last fingernails of any vestige of power that they think they once held, it is gone. This is the time for change. This is the historical juncture in this country. After decades of trying, this is the historical juncture. And everyone I have met here has said, we will put our lives down. That's all we have left is our lives. And even if my life is given up, I will know the future will have freedom.
0: That's the voice of filmmaker Jeannie Hallacy contributed to Flashpoints for us. We appreciate the incredibly good reporting. You've been reporting on this story and this.